for the believer in Christ, all of life is to be lived for the glory of God. We are to live for his glory, to magnify him, to make his name great, to please him, to honor him. That is what we were created for in the beginning. In the beginning, we were created in his image and given authority to rule over creation on his behalf. He created us and placed us in the center of his creation as the focal point to tend to his creation, to work in his creation, to rule over and subdue his creation. We were given a stewardship of rule in the beginning. As a result of our disobedience, we fractured our relationship with God and forfeited that role. As stewards created in the image of God to rule over creation on his behalf, But another came, another was sent, and this other, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, assumed and perfectly fulfilled that role. Thus, he has been given all authority, both in heaven and on earth, to rule as the God-man over all of what God has created. And those who have faith in him have their relationship with God restored the privilege of bearing his image once more for his glory and can look forward to ruling with Christ in the future. Though we fell from grace in the beginning, in Christ the grace of God is restored. Our role as image bearers renewed and once again we have that calling on our lives to live for the glory of God. Every believer understands this on some level, I think. The question is, do we actually live for the glory of God? Do we see ourselves, our lives as a stewardship given by God for the purpose of his glory? Do we seek to magnify him, to make his name great, to please him, to honor him in all that we do in life? Colossians chapter 3 verse 17, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, we're continuing in our series in Ephesians. Most recently, we looked at Paul's exhortation that we walk in wisdom. To walk in wisdom is to walk under the influence of the Holy Spirit as opposed to being under the influence of other things. To be a spirit-filled Christian is, among other things, to submit in ways that are appropriate in various relationships within the body of Christ. A spirit-filled Christian acknowledges, in other words, that all authority is given by God. Thus, it brings glory to God when we submit to those who are in authority over us. This is true for any and all relationships that we have as members of Jesus' church. We are to honor those who are in authority over us. Most recently, we looked at the family. In accord with the design of God, marriage, the union of one man and one woman, is intended to be a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. The husband is to love his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. The wife is to submit to her own husband as the church submits to Jesus in everything. Both of them are to obey these commands regardless of what the other person does for their good so that they're both blessed by the love of the other also for the good of their children, as their children see their obedience and imitation of Christ, also for the good of the watching world as they see a picture of Jesus' relationship with the church. And ultimately, all of these things bring glory to God. Children are likewise commanded to obey their parents in the Lord. 
Parents are commanded to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All of life, including life in the home, ought to be lived for the glory of God. This morning, we're continuing in the overall theme of submission for the glory of God. Moving beyond the family, we're going to consider the command of God for those who have work or some form of labor in the world today. The terminology used in our text for this morning refers to slaves and masters. I'll comment more on that in just a moment. But the application of this text really has to do with how we do our labor today, how we do our work in the workplace. Well, let's read the text. The text is going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. I'll read it. We'll have a, a brief prayer, and then we'll go through each of the verses in turn. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. As Jesus prayed, you sanctify us by your truth. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively, that they would indeed be acceptable in your sight O oh Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the workplace, we are commanded to do our work as unto the Lord. And as an outline, he addresses those who labor in verses 5 through 8 and those who lead in verse 9. Those who labor in verses 5 through 8 and those who lead in verse 9. This is all in the context of the workplace. Well, before we look at that first point, I mentioned that the closest referent to this exhortation today is more of a setting to the present day workplace. He uses the terminology slaves and masters, and that immediately brings up for us a certain imagery. The kind of slavery that Paul had in his day may have involved abuse and general disrespect, but it was still largely very different from the kind of sl slavery that was experienced in America. One author commented on slavery in Paul's day in this way. He said, and I quote, many became slaves due to debt or capture in a war. Some viewed slaves as property like chattel or inanimate tool rather than complete human beings, although according to Roman law, they were considered persons. According to Greek law, four differences distinguished a freed person from a slave. First, freed persons were their own representative in legal matters, whereas slaves had to be represented by their owner or some other le person legally empowered. Second, freed persons were not subject to seizure as property, whereas slaves were subject to seizure and arrest by anyone. Third, freed persons could earn their living as they desired, whereas slaves had to do what they were ordered. And fourth, freed persons could live where they wished, whereas slaves had to live where their owner desired, end quote. It is frequently noted that all, the, all different kinds of ethnicities of people were slaves in Paul's day. 
And again, some would choose to enslave themselves for various persons. Free persons would regularly sell themselves into slavery with the expectation that they could eventually purchase their freedom again. This would involve some sort of legal contract with a prospective owner. Additionally, slaves often occupied significant roles in the life of family in antiquity. You think back in the Old Testament to Potiphar and Joseph, for example. Joseph and Potiphar's wife, I mean, Joseph pretty much had free reign on the whole house. He had authority over just about everyone else in the house and everything that happened in the house, even though he was a slave. Or Abraham's servant, who Abraham trusted to go and find a wife for his son. Slaves could have been highly educated, and sometimes they would have been tutors for children at home. One author commented this way, thinking about the first century. In the first century, slaves worked in many sectors of the economy. They were used in various types of agriculture and industry as potters and miners of gold and silver. Other occupations were public cooks, fullers, couch makers, and bakers. In their professions, they were business agents and teachers, and in large houses, accountants and physicians. Also, the Roman state owned slaves to carry out municipal services. Emperors used them throughout the empire in various capacities, and some even managed and maintained the imperial properties. In the imperial palace, slaves were used as physicians, chamberlains, overseers of furniture and palace lighting, selectors of jewelry for specific costumes, valets, tailors, clothing menders, butlers in charge of wine for the imperial table, official tasters, stewards in charge of supplies. It is clear that the use of slaves was pervasive in the first century of the Roman Empire. Ephesian slaves would have served in many of these capacities, end quote. Now, this is clearly different than the kind of slavery that was experienced in America. Slavery in America was based on the purchase of large numbers of people from Africa. They were specifically purchased for the purpose of manual labor, thus treated as property and not as people. These slaves had having distinctive darker skin color who would not have otherwise been in the new world led to equating their darker skin color and African descent with slavery, servitude, with being property, again, and not people, thus perpetuating their poor treatment. They would have been used primarily for physical labor and they were considered to be property, were uneducated and were viewed as less than human. Again, this is why I said the commands that we have here to slaves and masters in this text more closely resembles the relationship experience in the workplace today than anything else. So when you think slaves and masters in the New Testament, don't think American slavery. Think about first century slavery. Slavery in Paul's day was certainly not perfect. However, again, it was a far cry from what we know of in our history Some people may wonder why the apostles never spoke out against the practice of slavery. The reality is that that was not the intent of Jesus and his ministry. It wasn't the intent of the apostles nor the first century church to right all of society's wrongs in their day. Their mission was not social reform. Our mission should not be social reform. That's not good enough. Theirs was a mission of gospel transformation. The gospel was what made the difference as the gospel led to the new birth. Thus, the church depended on the preaching of the gospel to change lives and the word of God to call those with changed lives to live in accord with this new life that they have in Christ. Thus, we have, as we started this section way back in chapter four, Paul's admonition for us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
Anyone who's a Christian who's come to faith in Christ ought to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That's the point. Well, let's look at the first point in our text in verses 5 through 8 again. In the workplace, those who labor as Christians are to do their work as unto the Lord. I'll read those verses again. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. Again, as we saw in the previous section, the one who is responsible for submitting under another's authority is addressed first in this section. In this case, the bond servant, the slave, the laborer, is responsible for submitting to the authority of their earthly master or employer. Also, just as we saw the relationship between parents and children, the idea is still submission in general, but the key word in this text is obey. Again, that's because the command to obedience is more appropriate for the relationship. A slave doesn't have the option of not obeying his master. That's the relationship that they have. If you're employed by an employer and you're given instructions for how the job is to be carried out, while we may not in our 21st century American mindset think of following instructions as obeying instructions, that's what it is. To disobey is to open yourself up to certain consequences, even up to termination. Bond servants are told to obey their earthly masters, be obedient. Your default attitude towards your employers as Christians ought to be obedience. You should not be a troublemaker. You should not be the one who everyone knows as a maverick, one who always ruffles feathers, goes against the grain. You should be known as one who obeys, who receives instructions and immediately consents to do what they were instructed. We touched on that last week. Slow obedience is no obedience. If you have someone who is slow to obey or who needs constant reminders, it's not really obedience. Obedience is first time. It's immediate. In other words, Christians, do your job. You shouldn't have to be told more than once to do your job. You, Christians, should be known in the workplace as someone who gets their job done, period. Of course, the same caveat here applies as it did in the previous sections We should always be willing to obey those in authority unless we are commanded to disobey the clear command of God. We touched on that enough. I think you guys understand that point. But what might this look like? Certainly it means following instructions or commands, but that's pretty basic, right? I think the idea of obedience here carries with it an overall attitude of obedience and a commitment to do one's job well. In other words, obedience encompasses all that we do as laborers. It would not be good enough for a worker to go to his place of employment and sit back and wait for his employer to tell him exactly what to do each moment of the day. That's not what this means. That would be obedience, but that's not the idea here. The idea is to pursue one's work with excellence. It is to work effectively within the parameters of one's job, to utilize your skill, your reasoning, your focus, your energy, to execute your role with excellence. This means, among other things, showing up to work on time and leaving on time, not earlier than you should. It means not wasting or squandering time when you should be working, not sitting on the computer surfing the web or shopping, for example. It means learning your role well to be able to contribute effectively, taking responsibility for learning your role well, not sitting back on your heels and waiting for somebody again to tell you what you need to do. 
Handling your responsibilities, again, without needing constant reminders. Being a good steward of the resources of others, treating others' property as you would your own. Helping others when appropriate and the opportunity arises. Being cheerful in your work and not complaining. Do all things without grumbling or complaining, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. And that includes not joining in with nor affirming the complaining spirit of others, even if you're doing it passively, right? Not sitting by the water cooler while, you know, coworker A is complaining to coworker B about something they don't like about the boss. And you just kind of sit there and, you know, maybe nod your head every once in a while. That's still joining in with their complaint. Also offering helpful suggestions and critique with grace. Having a desire for the overall welfare and success of your employer. And also as you are a Christian, being a Christian at work in ways that are appropriate, right? Sharing your faith with others. Sharing about your life of faith with others. People often talk about their weekend plans at the end of a week. Or they talk about what they did over the weekend at the beginning of the week. Why not talk about what you did over the weekend? You went to church. You got together with God's people. You learned something about God on Sunday morning. Just as they're sharing about some nonsense that they did on the weekend, you share about the good things that you did before the Lord over the weekend. That's not being intrusive. That's just talking about who you are as a person and what's important to you. Pray for your employer and your coworkers. Share Christ when appropriate. Obey your earthly masters. Be a good employee. Be a blessing. Seek to do good to your employer. That's the point. Moving on to the text, he further qualifies this obedience. It is to be done with fear. He says, obey your masters with fear and trembling. The reality is that the master or employer has a significant sway over the slave, right? The slave did not have the luxury of doing whatever they wanted. They had to obey their masters or else, again, there would be consequences. Paul is encouraging believing slaves to be obedient for their own good so that it goes well with them, so that they do not become subject to whatever consequences may come from disobedience. But the reality is that their willing obedience to their masters has an even greater significance Believers should be known as generally obedient. Disobedience brings disrepute on the gospel. Paul says it this way in Titus chapter 2. He says, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. And then he says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. He says that bond slaves laborers in the workplace who do good to their employers in the eyes of their employers adorn the doctrine of God. We properly adorn the doctrine of salvation. In other words, to adorn is to dress up. It's to make it beautiful. We adorn Christmas trees at Christmas time, right? We adorn them with ornaments. We dress up, we make beautiful the word of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, when we do what is good and right as laborers in the workplace. 
because the grace of God, the salvation of God, is supposed to teach something. That's what he says in the text. It instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what the grace of God ought to teach us. Therefore, these things ought to be true of us if we say that we're Christians. And people ought to see these things in our lives. And that's the very purpose for which Christ gave himself up, who gave himself up for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. We ought to be zealous for good deeds as believers. We are to obey those who are our earthly masters with fear and trembling. There ought to be a sense of urgency in this. To do something with fear and trembling suggests a certain gravity of the task at hand. Christians ought to be zealous for good deeds, zealous to be known for obedience, not disobedience, because this properly adorns the doctrine of salvation. Our obedience ought to be done with fear, but it also ought to be sincere. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart. Well, what does that mean? The word translated sincere in the ESV can be translated singleness or single. This is in opposition to duplicity, meaning with an ulterior motive. In other words, our obedience to our earthly masters ought to be genuine. We should not have false motives in our hearts. We should not merely appear to be obedient on the, inside, on the outside when our hearts are behind the backs of our earthly masters, we are disobedient. This is the coworker who dutifully and diligently types at his computer when the boss is walking through the office, but the moment the boss is gone or turns his back, he returns again to his online shopping or social media surfing. Are you singly devoted to your job? Are you singly devoted and committed to doing your job well? Regardless of what you do, if you're a Christian, you should have a desire to be a blessing in everything that you do. This includes being a blessing to your earthly masters in whatever your occupation is. I'm reminded again of Joseph as he was sold in slavery. He could have been bitter, right? And any one of us, I probably would have been bitter, just being honest. Any one of us would have been bitter. Being sold into slavery by your family, and now you're just you're stuck in this awful position. But Joseph didn't grumble or complain. What did he do? He was given a job to do as a slave, and he did his job with excellence. So much so that, again, his master gave him charge over everything in his household, except for his wife, of course, and we all know where that went. But that wasn't his fault. He was promoted in the way that he was because he did his job with excellence. That was in his heart. That's the way we ought to be. Yes, it is nice when we enjoy our occupation, but that's not always possible. It is nice when we do something and we find a sense of personal fulfillment in it, but that's not always possible. What we can do, what we can control is our effort. We can endeavor to have a singleness of mind in regards to our occupation, that we are going to serve well, that we are going to obey, that we are going to do our jobs well in order to be a blessing to our earthly masters because that's pleasing to the Lord. And that's what Paul says in the next breath. We are to obey with fear. We are to obey with sincere hearts. We are to obey to revere Christ. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. 
As I said all earlier, this is ultimately our goal. All of what we do, including our occupation, we're to do as unto the Lord, as if we're working for the Lord, as if we're working for his good pleasure, for his glory. This is clearly on Paul's mind. Look again at the text, verse 5. Again, as you would Christ. Verse 6, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service as to the Lord. This is on his mind. To underscore the point, he says, again, this is not obedience for the sake of pleasing others, but rather to please Christ. Verse 6, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Your inner heart motivation for doing good in your job, for serving your master well, is not the good pleasure of others. You're not working hard so that your master thinks that you are a good worker, pats you on the back, and exalts you before your coworkers. You're not working hard or doing a good job so that your coworkers think that you are top dog, the hardest worker, the one they should look up to with envy. In other words, your primary motivation is not so that you can be made much of. It is rather serving in your role, in your occupation, understanding that ultimately you are a servant of Jesus Christ and that the good which you do is ultimately unto the Lord and for his glory. That whole attitude is countercultural. It is rather encouraged for people to be go-getters, to make sure that you know the right people and show them the right stuff. Ingratiating yourself to your coworker and to your boss is a way to get ahead, according to this mentality. Whether you care about your work or not is irrelevant. You just want for others to believe that you care about your work. You want for the right people to see you caring about your work at the right time so that they're pleased and you get promoted. The text says, no, you are to do good to obey your earthly masters because you have a greater master, a heavenly master, and you are working for him. When you have that attitude, it should not matter if the right people see you. Now, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to want to progress in your career. You may, but this text says that if you're a Christian, your motivation for doing good, for being obedient, is not first achievement, accolades, or advancement. Your primary motivation is that you are serving your heavenly master through your work, that you're seeking to do good, to serve him with excellence. You are to do your work again as you would for Christ, as bondservants or slaves of Jesus Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Your desire ought to be to do his will, to do what's pleasing to him, to hear from him, well done, good and faithful slave. God is not so much concerned with what you do as with how you do it. Again, verse 7, rendering service with good will as to the Lord, not to man. This person renders their service with a good will, with a good attitude, with a happy heart, knowing that they're first working for and serving the Lord, not man. Again, the issue is motivation. In the world's eyes, doing the work of a garbage man may not be successful. He's not going to be looked at as the one who made it in life. But a Christian garbage man who works hard, shows up on time, is neat and tidy, doesn't drop trash all over the ground, and if he does, he cleans it up, doesn't throw people's trash cans all over the sidewalk and the lawn. Not that I'm speaking from experience here. But otherwise, seeks to do his job well, knowing that whatever job he has 
is from the Lord and whatever job he does ought to be done for the glory of God. That one's work will be better received in the eyes of the Lord than the Wall Street broker who stepped on others to get where he was, who lied, who cheated, who stole in order to get just the right accounts to have his six figures, fancy home, collectible vehicles and model wife. The world will think that the latter is simple and they'll laugh at the garbage man. But God is pleased with the work of the one who does it for his glory. It's a service for the sake of Christ as unto Christ. We are to be workers, good workers, not merely for the sake of pleasing others, but for the sake of pleasing Jesus. Moreover, he says in verse 8 that this obedience is not ultimately for the reward of others, but for the reward of Christ. Verse 8, knowing that whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. R.C. Sproul once said that, quote, God typically works through means, and he normally provides through the means of our labor. Generally speaking, when we go to work, we go in order to receive wages. We don't usually work for free. At least we try not to. We work in order to put food on our tables, to make sure that we have a roof over our heads, clothes on our backs. From a Christian worldview perspective, we do know that God is the one who ultimately provides all these things for us. Jesus said that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or shelter, but seek first the kingdom of God. The Heavenly Father provides all these things to you. We just read from First Thessalonians chapter or Second Thessalonians chapter three, Paul's admonition that if anyone doesn't work, he's not to eat. The expectation is that we do work. We do labor in order to provide for ourselves and that this is part of how God provides for us. In this respect, then work is not evil. Any work that we do, we should see as good as it is God's means of providing for us. Again, the world may wish to skip from Sunday to Saturday. The world may take this attitude that work is burdensome and a necessary evil. But the Christian worldview understands that we're created to work. We are created to work in the very beginning and that that's still true. So work is good. It is a part of God's gracious provision. We don't have to be able to apply for a job. We don't have to be able to interview well. We don't have to have favor in the eyes of the hiring manager. We don't have to have the skill or work experience necessary for the job. We don't have to live in the kind of society where wages are generally fair and paid out regularly. None of these things had to happen or work out for us to be able to have a job that serves as a means by which our families are fed, clothed, and provided shelter. But again, generally speaking, this is what happens, particularly for us in our nation. And when it happens for us, when we're provided with a job, we ought to look at it for what it is, a provision from the Lord. Therefore, a Christian's view of labor, of his job, is not that job, the job is what ultimately provides for us, if that were the case, perhaps we should work hard to please men. Perhaps we should do good in the eyes of those who can give us promotion. Perhaps it doesn't matter what the motivations of our hearts are. But Paul says emphatically, no, those things do matter. We are called to have right motives. We are called to have right attitudes. We are called to do our work as unto the Lord because it is not our employer's reward, our earthly master's reward that we're ultimately working for. Or rather, we're working for the reward that comes from the hand of God from the very one who provided this job for us. 
We do know that whoever does good, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. God is our heavenly master. As he is in heaven, he sees all, he knows all, he is the perfect judge of all, and will bring all things into judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, his great book on wisdom, where he The preacher sits back and he thinks about all of life and all of what he's seen, all of what he's experienced, all of what he knows about life. And he says, this is the conclusion of the matter. This is the end. When all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to everyone. He just got finished talking about how vain everything is. It's empty. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Why do we go about doing all these things? It doesn't really matter in the end. Why do you work hard when some fool's going to inherit your money and squander it probably in the end? Why do you do this? Why do you do that? Why do we have to worry about these things under the sun? Well, because ultimately, God's going to bring every act to judgment. And so it matters how we live. Sometimes it feels like it doesn't matter, but it does matter how we live because God is the judge. He sees all, he knows all, and he will bring every act into judgment. Revelation chapter 20 gives us a kind of a glimpse of that. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from these things, which were written in the books according to their deeds. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, we read earlier from the Baptist faith and message concerning the issue of stewardship. All of life is that. It is a stewardship. Every act of our lives will be measured against the standard of God. He will bring each and every act into judgment. Every person will be judged according to their deeds. As it said in the passage from Revelation, those whose names are not written in the book of life are ultimately cast into the lake of fire. That's the second death. But the reality is that everyone's deeds are scrutinized on that day. As it says in Ephesians, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Therefore, seek to do good. Seek to be obedient. Seek to serve well in whatever your occupation is, knowing that the Lord, the righteous judge, will bring all of your deeds into account and he will give you a reward. This is laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth or rust will not destroy. Thieves cannot break in and steal. Keeping this truth before you as you do your work. And in the workplace, those who labor are to do their work as unto the Lord. Second, and finally, in the workplace, those who lead are to do their work as unto the Lord. Look again at verse 9. Masters do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Masters do the same. What is the same? Well, they were just told to obey. But again, the idea of obedience is a lot greater than simply responding to commands. He's not saying to the masters that they need to obey the slaves. That's not the idea there. The idea of what it means to obey is really to do your work with excellence. And more than that, he talks about that they ought to be, the workers, laborers, ought to be seeking to do good in their respective jobs to their masters. And I think that's the idea here that Paul is encouraging. Again, Paul and the apostles, even Jesus before them, were not intending to reform society. 
They made no such comments concerning social issues, issues like slavery. Again, they did address believers and taught believers how to act in those various ways. And to this end, Paul's address to the masters is to encourage them in the same way that he encourages the slaves. He addressed those as slaves to seek to do good. And now he says to the masters, you do likewise. Do good to your slaves, to those in your employment. He'll say in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Grant to them justice and fairness. Do good to them. Do right by them. Those of you who are Christian business owners, Christian leaders, do good to those who are under your charge. That should be your desire. Your desire should not be to work them to the bone. It should not be to squeeze every ounce of labor out of them and pay them as little as possible to make your name great and your business great. Your desire as Christian business owners ought to be to lead and to do good to those under your charge. It's funny that now there are so many articles, TED Talks, books, journals, studies, and the like that all point to the reality that happy employees are actually better for the business, obviously, right? But that's kind of like a big thing that's been coming out in recent years. Make your employees happy, really. Happy employees are more productive, really. I can certainly attest to this. Two employers ago, I knew with absolute certainty that the company did not care for its employees. They treated them as expendable. This was seen in the way that a number of those who were in leadership were simply let go one day. They were here one day, the next day they were just gone. And there wasn't much explanation to it. Some people were kept behind and there wasn't any clear explanation or reason as to why those were kept behind and the others were let go. And my next place of employment was almost the exact opposite. They cared for their employees. They made it a point of developing their employees. In fact, when I moved into leadership in that next job, that was one of the regular conversations that I had with my boss. As I was caring for those who were under my charge, they were regularly asking me, how are you helping your employees to develop? I thought that was wonderful. That's amazing. That was a value that the company had, and it was clear. Christian business owners, you are to do good to your employees. Treat them with justice and fairness. What might this look like? It will certainly give them fair wages. Wages commensurate with the market for the role with their experience and competence. Avoid partiality or favoritism, particularly if there's no clear merit system for compensation. It's okay to reward for good work. It just needs to be clear to everyone what the basis of this reward is. Second, give them benefits appropriate to the role, health care, time off and retirement and the like. Make sure they are trained well and set them up for success in their roles. If you're not their direct supervisor but set someone over them, make sure that person is honorable and doing their job well. Don't just assume. Set clear communications and expectations for them and hold them to these expectations. Make sure that your review and compensation process consistently reflects this. And as you're a Christian, show Christian kindness to them. Pray for them. Proclaim the truth of the gospel in times and ways that are appropriate. Be consistent in your business practices so that there's no question that you are indeed a Christian. You're not cheating your business partners. You're not lying on your taxes. You're doing what is good and right. And they can see that clearly from you. The point is that those who serve as masters and those who lead ought to do good to those who are under their charge. Moving on, look again at verse 9. He says, and stop your threatening. 
Be good to them and stop threatening. Stop using the force of threat, the force of coercion to try to get your employees to do what you want them to do. You don't need to be mean-spirited or a jerk in order to get people to do what you want. Again, be kind to them. Treat them well. He says, do good to them, don't threaten them, and do your work as unto the Lord. Again, verse 9, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. The reason ultimately why masters should do good and not threaten is not because they want more reliable or productive employees, but rather for the Christian, the greater motivation is because we all have a master in heaven. You may be the master on earth, but the one who is all of our master, both theirs and yours, is in heaven. He is in heaven, thus again he sees all, he knows all, and is the perfect judge of all, and there's no partiality with him. You will not be excused from doing good to them simply because you are their master. The world may afford you a great deal of luxury and respect for being a business owner, for having reached the status of being your own boss, but you still answer to someone. You answer to someone greater than your earthly boss. You answer to the Lord, and he is not one to show partiality. Just as it was said for the employee, for the slave, you will have to give an account before God for how you have lived your life as a Christian who leads others in the workplace. Again, verse 8, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Well, as we conclude here, What do you work for? Whether you are a laborer or a leader in the workplace, what do you work for? Do you work to feel good about yourself, about your ability to do this particular job, your intelligence, your skill, your wisdom on display for all to see, your ability to climb the corporate ladder to make your name great or significant? Do you work just to provide, to be able to provide food, clothing, and shelter for your family? Or more than that, to provide all the luxuries your heart desire? Do you work just to build something? to feel as if you've accomplished something in life, to leave an example for your posterity? What do you work for? As a Christian, it's not what you work for that's most important, but rather who you work for. It's not the result of your work, but the reality behind your work. Your work is not significant because of who you are, but because of who you know. All of life is a stewardship. It's a stewardship that we will need to give an account for. No matter what you do by means of your present occupation, you could be a laborer, an office worker, a scientist, a teacher, a homemaker, a student, a business owner, yes, even a garbage worker. If you're a Christian, whatever you do, your aim in what you do ought to be to glorify God. If you are simply a laborer in the workforce, seek to do good, to be obedient, to bring value, to bring blessing to your employer. If you are a leader in the workplace, seek to do good, to be a blessing to your employees, to support and develop them whatever ways you can. Again, whether you are a laborer or a leader in the workplace, if you're a Christian, your boss, your master is in heaven. And you ought to work for his good pleasure. You ought to do all of what you do with excellence for his good pleasure because you're representing him. Let's look to the Lord now and pray that he would make these things true of all of us. Our Father, we do give you thanks for this day. We thank you for your word, which is true. 
your word which sanctifies us. Thank you for reminding us that even our jobs, whatever our occupation is, is sacred if we are believers. You have given it to us, whatever our occupation is currently. It is from your hand. And therefore, we ought to seek to give you glory in the midst of it. I pray, Father, that you would make that true of all of us, whether we are in the workplace, a laborer or a leader, whether we are a teacher or a student, whether we are a homemaker or a nine-to-five office worker. I pray that you would help us to do our work with excellence, to do good, to be a blessing, and to do that ultimately for your glory. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.